Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting Slate's Parenting Podcast for Thursday, August 30th, the Age of Fear edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, who is seven, and Leo, who is four. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 17, Teddy, who is 15 and a half, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 18. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 12, but only for two more days, and Ezra who is 15. Uh, Today on our show, we'll be joined by Kim Brooks. She's the author of the new book, Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Plus, we have a question highly pertinent to the age of fear about what to do when you find out that your neighbor is a registered sex offender. As always, we'll have triumphs and fails. Uh, We'll make recommendations. And on Slate Plus, we're going to dig through the mailbag. Uh, Let's start with triumphs and fails. Rebecca, you want to go first to triumph or fail? Uh, fail. Although I think the fail belongs more to one of my kids than me. I tried to handle it as best as I could, but I'm still going to talk about it uh, as a fail because it felt like one at the time. I got a call last week at work. It was a couple days before the start of school. School started yesterday. So this was like Thursday or Friday from the guidance counselor uh, of Teddy's grade, uh, his wonderful, sweet guidance counselor, who I've talked to many, many times about Teddy's successes and failures in school and with whom I have a pretty good relationship. And she called to let me know that Teddy's honors English teacher, his 10th grade teacher, had given her a list of kids who did not do their summer work and those kids could not be in the honors section of English. And Teddy's name was on the list. And moving him out of that section changed a whole bunch of other things about his schedule. Like he wasn't going to be able to take German anymore. And it just got like really complicated really quickly. And so I I said, uh, Corinne, I just can we just pause the conversation for a second? Uh, As far as I knew, Teddy did do the summer work. Um, I can't answer any of these questions about his schedule because he's almost a grown ass boy now. And it's kind of his thing at this point. And I'm going to have to call him and have him call you. So I called Teddy at home and after about three minutes of bullshit about how he really did do it, but maybe didn't hand it in or whatever, whatever, which I knew was bullshit as soon as he started doing it. He admitted that he, in fact, had not finished the summer work. He had started it, but not finished it. And then he left for camp and then he was just hoping it would go away and that nothing would happen and that no one would ever know and all that stuff. And I said, Teddy, I'm just going to be real with you. I'm super pissed. I'm not pissed because you didn't do your summer work and you're not getting into honors English. That's you. I'm not pissed because you're not going to be able to take German three. That's on you. I'm pissed because I'm at work right now and I had to feel this phone call from your guidance counselor telling me you hadn't done something that you spent all summer telling me that you had done. So I said, you need to call her and you need to deal with it and fix it. And then I sent her a quick email and I said, Teddy's going to call you. Can you just text me back or call me back later and just let me know that he called you? I don't need to like get the whole rundown on the outcome. I don't at this point care. I just need to know he, he like closed this loop. 
So he did. Apparently, it all actually, and I hate to say this, it kind of worked out really well, uh, which is like one of those things that makes you even more mad when you're in the situation I was in because he called her. He ended up, you know, getting out of German three, which frankly, he shouldn't have been taking anyway because he struggled really hard through German two and he's finished with his language requirement now. So he doesn't have to take German three. And he got a new English section and now he gets to take psychology, which he really wanted to take, but he wasn't able to take because of German three and yada, yada, yada. He worked it all out. He has a new schedule. But I was so pissed still. I was so pissed uh, that I called Kevin. He was at home from work that day. And I said, Kevin, here's the deal. I am super pissed at Teddy right now. I know that being just super pissed and coming down on him really hard just like doesn't work in these situations. It's never worked. It's never the right thing to do. I need you to be the nice parent so that I can just be passive aggressive and avoid him when I get home because I'm so pissed and I don't want to talk about this. But I need you to proactively be the nice one. I need you to make sure he's okay. I need you to make sure he feels good about his schedule. I need you to talk through whatever guilt and regret bullshit he feels about lying about not doing this work and not doing the work to begin with. I need you to handle it because I am too pissed and I don't even want to like like talk to him about it so um that's what happened and then later that night I came home there was like a couple hours that passed and then things uh, kind of transpired in such a way where Teddy and I went to dinner just the two of us and he was just like super scared to say anything the whole time and then he was just like mom I really messed this up and I'm like I know I know I'm like but you know what can you just like tell me like I'm allowed to be pissed right I'm just I'm not going to yell at you I think you know you're experiencing the natural consequence, but like, I'm allowed to be pissed. He's like, yeah, you're allowed. And then like over the period of dinner, it all just sort of simmered down. I kind of stopped being pissed and he, you know, stopped feeling like all he wanted to do was apologize and uh, it all worked out. But yeah, it was kind of a fail on a few levels, although I, I didn't feel like it was a fail just to throw up my hands and not try to get him out of it or deal with it in any way and just make him handle it. That that, that part felt good. Yeah, but the, the rest first, of it kind of felt The first like a part fail. of the story, I thought, this is 100% by the book solid good parenting. You're letting him take responsibility for the consequences of his actions. That that didn't seem like a fail to me at all. It was only when when you brought home the passive aggressive part uh, that, that, that I thought, well, I could see how maybe there would be a different way to do that. Yeah, but self-aware, what, what, wait, 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 self-aware, wait, wait, passive are you aggression. Not supposed to, are you not supposed to do that? Because I, <laughs> I do that with my kids all the time. When I get mad at them, I'm just like, that's it. You're getting the silent treatment, and I'm going to give you the silent treatment for 27 minutes, and that's that's how you're going to know that I'm disappointed. That seems good. If you can actually announce the silent treatment and give them and give it a time limit, that seems great. I recognize myself in the, like, I'm not actually going to tell you that I'm mad. I'm just going to, like, be kind of sarcastic and grouchy around you, and you're going to know that I'm mad, but we're not going to talk about it explicitly. That's the part that feels maybe uh, suboptimal. Maybe we need to change it to like suboptimal and optimal rather than triumphs and fails. <laughs> it's catchy. Super Very catchy. catchy. I, I don't think that I th it's really hard. I mean, this is we talk about all the time about kids, right? And we talk about this about kids. So why not like just be real with as parents? The feelings aren't wrong. And there's nothing really you can do about the feelings. They are there and they exist. And obviously it's about controlling your behavior around your feelings. And we talk about this with kids. And I, I know when I'm that mad, like I was so mad, like I had tears in my eyes. I'm one of those like mad criers, you know, I don't cry when I'm sad, but I super cry when I'm mad, like it's a thing. And I, and I, the tears were just like right behind my eyes. I was so mad. And I'm like, I have two choices. Neither are good. One is yelling, which is, I know in this situation, I've lived through it so many times is the opposite because then like you become part of the problem. And the other one is just like cold silent treatment and I also know that's not good but I did announce it I did say like I feel this way and the wish my affect right now is a result of that and 
I'm not saying it's great, but it's how I feel. And like, you just need to deal with it. It's another natural consequence of this super shitty thing that you did. I mean, I actually think I've been thinking about this because I actually did have a few like maybe like a few months ago. I had a thing where the kids were just pissed me off so much that I actually didn't want to talk to them for like a half an hour. And um, and I, I was like. I, f- I wasn't sure if I should feel bad as bad about that as I felt, but one of the things I was thinking was that there's a fine line between the manipulative, um, I'm, I'm going to make you feel bad because I feel bad, which is actually the root of all shitty, abusive behavior, right? It's like, I have a bad feeling, and so I'm going to make you have a bad feeling as you know to punish you for, for my belief that you gave me this bad feeling, even though you didn't. But, but there's a fine line between that and also recognizing that as a parent, sometimes you do really your anger point hits like high levels and you need to take some space. You need to take a break. And sometimes that can be interpreted as like a, a silent treatment or some kind of ignoring. But in reality, that can be a healthy behavior just to say like, look, kid, I mean, kids frustrate you. That's we all know that. And um, you can't I mean, in an ideal world, you're always going to be like, yes, I'm upset, but I'm going to process my anger and then we're going to move on to the next thing. But that's not what it is. Sometimes you're really triggered and you need to actually just walk away and not talk to the person and not look at them for a while until you can get yourself back to a to to like a, a place where you can communicate. And that's not it, it may not be perfect, but I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing in the world. Rebecca Lavoy, not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> that's going on my tombstone, guys. Congratulations. Um, I have a fail too. I uh, if you are an attentive and and prompt listener to this show, um, you will, and you have a good memory, and you care about it much more than you probably should. Uh, you will then obviously vividly remember that I was out last week. I was here the week before that, and then I was out the week before that. A weird pattern of outages, which comes from my having uh, had a weird vacation schedule this year we were trying to schedule vacations um i could take two weeks during the summer and we wanted to go away with my mom and my brother's family and and the kids could spend some time with their cousins so we went away with them a couple weeks ago and then we wanted to go on our own family vacation to martha's vineyard where we've been going every year which we always do like this past week because that's when our friends are also going and so the only way it worked was for me to be out of work for a week on this big family vacation back at work for a week and then out of work for another week I, I want to tell you now, if you're considering that as a vacation schedule, I, I advise against it if it's at all avoidable. Like there was no other way we could schedule these two trips that we wanted to take. But if if that's a thing that you're considering, see if you can figure out another way to do it. Because what wound <laughs> up happening is we went away on this really nice trip with my whole family. It was great, lovely. Came back and then I had like five days back at work to do a ton of stuff before going away again. And so I really like got my head down and I got super into all this work that needed doing. And I'm fortunate to have an engaging job that can sort of take up a lot of my attention. And so for those five days, I worked late whenever I had the opportunity. And we'd just been away with the kids and we were about to go away with the kids again. So I kind of put just a lot of like time with the kids, like I deprioritized that. And, and by the time we left for the second vacation, then I was so firmly in the mode of like being a guy doing my job and getting my work done that for the first couple days of the vacation, I was that dad who is unable to let go of doing his work when he's on vacation. Like mm. I wasn't actually checking my email, but I was wanting to check my email. 
And I was like having a hard time now being on family vacation again. And I was super grouchy about like doing family vacation stuff. It didn't help that the first few days it was kind of rainy and overcast. So we couldn't go to the beach. So you have to, that demands a bit more creativity of you as a parent. You have to like get the fun going. And I was not the guy, like the project of getting the fun going was not the project that I was up for at that moment because my head was in all of this other stuff. I got out of it halfway, but before halfway through the vacation, a few days into the vacation, I, I I feel like I got into the vacation spirit, um, but the planning was suboptimal, and definitely my my parenthood during those first couple of days was suboptimal. So that's my fail. That's my suboptimal. Hmm. Carvel, how about you? Triumph or fail while I've been gone? I had a fail that's actually not just kind of overlaps with Rebecca's fail. So um, Georgia. I actually more need advice on this. So um, Georgia started school two weeks ago, and in, and she's going into the eighth grade. And those of you, like I was a math nerd kind of growing up. And so um, I was on this like math track where you take algebra in eighth grade, geometry in ninth, and and, and then algebra two in 10th trig, and then cal- calculus, which I bailed in calculus because in 11th grade, I realized I was an artist and I need any of this shit. But by eighth grade, I was really convinced that I was going to maybe like be a rocket scientist or whatever. So I was like, so I... Algebra in eighth grade was the thing. So Georgia's entering eighth grade, and she informs me the first day of school that there is an algebra class available for eighth graders, but you have to test into it. And when she described what it was, I already didn't like the setup because, A, you had to test into it, and, B, you had to still take Math 8 in order because they had done algebra without Math 8 last year, and the kids had struggled. So they felt like the kids needed to take Math 8 and also take algebra, which meant that the kids on four days a week would be giving up one of their advisory period, which is this free period. And then on Wednesdays, which is a shortened day, they would have to get to school at 7.30 a.m. to take an algebra class. Mm. And not only was Georgia down for this, there were like 85 kids down for this, and they only had like 40 slots. And so, because they don't have enough teachers. And so Georgia was immediately like, I'm going to do this. I'm like, this is what I want to do. So she starts studying for this algebra test from the first day of school. And she like downloads these practice tests and she sits with her teacher and she does all this stuff. And Georgia is a very good student. She gets generally pretty much straight A's all the time, except in math where she struggles and gets like B's, the occasional B. And every time she gets a B in math, She's like apoplectic. And then we have to talk her down from the ledge. No, it's okay. You did your best, blah, blah, blah. And so, but I was like, so even before the test, she had a great deal of anxiety about whether or not, what if I don't get in? What if I was like, look, your chances are 50 50. You just do your best. And that's, you know, how it works is giving that a whole thing. And this is going on for days. So the day comes, she takes the test. She leaves. She's like, I'm like, how do you feel? She's like, I don't know. There were so many kids. I couldn't believe it. She like sent me a video of how many kids were lined up to take the test. Again, a 730 algebra class is what these kids were lining up to do so if you ever feel like this generation is lost with its fortnight and whatever just it's there's more going on than you know anyway so um so she takes the test and then uh and then we that's thursday of last week and then monday she's like stressing and then she finds out i think it was monday night that she didn't get in mm-hmm. she got a 70 on the test and you need to get an 80 to get in or 69 Come on. And, you, and exactly 
That's exactly what I thought. So I, I fielded this phone call from her while I was at work. I had to step out. I was in a meeting and all this stuff. And she was crying and she couldn't believe it. And and uh, and so I gave her the whole, you know, every pep talk that a dad can give. And she's like, but I want to go into STEM fields and I'm not I'm dumb. I'm dumb, dad. I'm, no, you're not dumb. Like every look. And I said, here's all my rejection stories. Look, I'm supposed to be this writer that everyone likes. And then I always people ask me to write for them. And then I send them pitches and they're like, no. And it happens all the time. And I'm like, rejection's a part of it. I whipped out the old Michael Jordan got cut from his middle school basketball team, Chestnut, which I don't even know is true. I think that's been debunked. But I've been, I've been using it. <laughs> It, uh, with impunity with my kids. Feels true. Know? It feels true. And so um, I think the story's a little more complicated, but it boils down to Michael Jordan didn't make his middle school basketball team. And so I whipped out that one and everything, and we love you. And it's, you know, if, you're, if you're passionate about this, there's going to be other opportunities. If you want tutoring, we'll get you tutoring. Like, we love you. You can do this. So I got her to a place where she was more or less stable. And then, but the, it just it just made me mad. The more I thought about it, just made I was like, you have kids who are going out of their way to take a seven thirty algebra class, and you're telling them no, they can't do it. What is that? And so that night, I was talking to an like an old friend of mine who's a teacher and, is, and is a, has been a teacher for like fifteen years, and I explained the story to her, and she was like, that's fucked up. She was like, that's tracking in the worst possible way. You should actually go into that school and like you can make it hard for them. Like you can show up at, and be like, what the fuck is this and what is this about? And I was like, really? She was like, yeah. I mean, I think from my perspective as a, as a, as a professional like, like high school educator, this is problematic and you can do something about it. And that was last night, and I still I don't quite know what to do. Like, should I do that? I I brought the issue to Georgia, and and I was like, you know, my my friend said that blah blah, blah and she was like, she was like, well, what? She was like, I mean, I was like afraid that I was going to embarrass her, and she'd be like, no, Dad, don't ever do that. My God, that'd be the worst thing ever. But she didn't quite do that. She was like, I don't know, Dad. I mean, it's just it's I'm just mad about it, and she's mad about it, and I'm mad about it, and Joe's mad about it, and it just Ezra doesn't care. But you know, everyone's it's just like. It's just, it's just, I don't know what to do about it. And I can't believe, I just can't, I'm still in that state of shock where I'm like, I can't believe that my daughter wants to take a 7.30 a.m. algebra class and that her school won't let her. Like, that can't be right, can it? Someone hmm. help me out here. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys I, think? So, well, how, did, how does she feel about you asking that question? Because isn't it, I mean, it's a question you want to ask, Right. Like yeah, the question is, the question is, why do you have a system in place that a lot of people in education say or would say is tracking of the worst kind? And here you have enthusiasm from the kids on learning this and you've created a system where it's not possible to teach them. I mean, you can ask, maybe you can frame it as a, I don't know. I mean, I have justice issues, so I'd probably be a giant pain in the ass about this if it were me. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to sort out like my <laughs> justice issues. You know what I mean? Cause I want to like lead a protest and like burst in there with like, you know what I mean? With like a, a megaphone and be like, hell no, we won't go. I'm going to chain myself to the principal's desk. You know, like the part of right. me feels but that way. But you also don't want to like, like fix this problem for your kid. You don't want to be the parent who's like, like my daughter that's didn't get into I'm this saying. thing, so you have to change the whole system. No, I get that, and that's yeah, and why if you to, decide yeah. to do it, you have to frame it. It's like for everyone, you know, even if right. even if you could well, let yeah. in. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, I get it. I understand I your conundrum. I mean, maybe Gabe can thing? tell you what to do. Is this? I obviously can't. Is this a thing that <laughs> happens like every year? Like, is algebra hugely oversubscribed every year, and then they started putting it at seven thirty, and it was still hugely oversubscribed? No. What happened was they didn't put it at seven thirty because it was oversubscribed. They put it at seven thirty because they didn't because they decided last year they had algebra instead of math eight. This year they decided the kids had to do both algebra and math eight simultaneously. That sounds stupid. Because that last year's really algebra stupid. kids struggled so much, which already pissed me off. That already pissed I'm like, what the fuck? Like, you're telling me you, well, whatever, whatever. So that already pissed me off. But I was like, okay, if you're willing to do it, you're willing to do it. And then the reason that it's oversubscribed is because they, I guess they don't have enough teachers to teach multiple classes. I guess. Yeah. And so they, so they only have a certain number of slots. And I so mean, it definitely, it definitely seems like if there's only half as many algebra slots as there are kids who want to take algebra, that feels like a thing to raise. You don't, as Rebecca says, you don't have to raise it in a like, my daughter deserves only the best. You can raise it right. in a which like. Is a little bit how I feel, which is why I've held my tongue thus yeah, far until I get right, over that right. you gotta maybe vibe, but I totally be careful right about now. expressing that set of feelings <laughs> and instead, instead express the perfectly reasonable set of feelings like. Right. You guys maybe need to think about how you can shift your resources around because like yeah. algebra is a demand that the school should be able to meet. It's not like violin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ooh, now well, you're going to get lots okay. of hate mail from yeah, the violin Yeah, I don't know about people. that. You just, <laughs> wow. Dude, uh, bring, bring, bring it on, violiners, <laughs> if that's what you call yourselves. <laughs> Violinos, bring it on. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, we'll, well I'll, be, I'll be happy to hear what people on the Facebook page have to say about this. Yeah, me too. Um, and, um, <laughs> you know, follow up and let us know, obviously. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we move on, let's do the business. As always, if you have a question you'd like us to answer on air, leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or send us an email at momanddadatslate.com. Also, be sure to check out the Slate Parenting Facebook group. A lot of fans of the show there discussing this and every episode, but also sharing their own parenting questions, offering advice, sharing triumphs and fails. It's a great community. Go to Facebook, search for Slate Parenting. On Slate Plus today, we're going to go through the mailbag and uh, hear some of your comments on previous episodes. Um, if you want to hear that segment and another just like it, well, not just like it, but similar to it every week, uh, you can do that by signing up for Slate Plus. You get an extended ad-free version of this and your other favorite Slate shows every week, and it's a great way to support the show. Just $35 for your first year. Go to slate.com slash plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, let's go. Uh, our guest today is Kim Brooks. She's a writer in Chicago, and she's the author of a new book, Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Uh, we were very struck by an excerpt from that book that ran in the New York Times in July. Uh, and that excerpt starts uh, with something that happened to you, Kim, in, in 2011, uh, when you were visiting your parents in Virginia with your four-year-old son. Uh, could you just tell us what happened? So I was, it was the last day before I went home to Chicago. Um, my son's headphones, the special headphones he liked to use on the plane had broken. And I 
decided to run to the store about a mile from my parents' house. Um, he wanted to come with me. And when we arrived at the store, though, he had discovered my mother's iPad in the car and asked if he could wait while I ran into the store. And I let him. Um, I, it was a cool day. It was a, seemed like a safe area, the kind of place where I had lots of memories growing up and waiting in cars while my own parents ran errands. So I ran into the store. Um, I was back within a few minutes, about five minutes. He was fine. Um, we left. We went to the airport with my, got my daughter, went to the airport. And it was only when I got home to Chicago that I learned that someone apparently had watched me do this, um, had watched me go into the store, had recorded it on their phone, um, had called the police, who then had shown up after I had left, and that the police were now um, looking for me and wanted to talk to me and um, were interested in pressing some sort of charges for the the for for me allowing my son to wait in the car and and how did you feel when you got that information um i was i was pretty shocked you know i was upset uh i was scared um you know i didn't really i didn't understand um wh why what i had done was um neglectful or harmful or criminal you know it had seemed in the moment like a reasonable thing to do um and i just i just was very scared and confused um that someone you know had seen me and had not not only thought it was uh you know, not okay but that it was not okay enough to to sort of call the police um and and deal with the situation in that way the the so then the legal repercussions of this played out over a very long time it was about a year and a half Ultimately, I was charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor, um, and it had to do 100 hours of community service um, and parenting education. Um, so, you know, it was it was um, it was it was quite um, a, a traumatic uh, experience for both me and my family, and got me thinking about these larger issues of parenthood and fear um, and the way our you know, the culture of parenthood has changed in the last generation. Yeah. Say more about that. I, you said that you remember being left alone in a car by your parents, and I, I certainly remember that happening to me. What has happened between then and now that makes it unacceptable? Well, what's happened is that we no longer think it's acceptable. Um, you know, it's, and that was part of the question that motivated me to start working on the book and researching the book was, you know, at first I thought, wait, did I miss something? Is, you know, some, maybe something has changed. Maybe it really is, the world really is more dangerous now. Um, and my parents just didn't know any better, you know, but it's certainly true with some things, right? We all have like pictures of, you know, the parent, like, blowing cigarette smoke in the baby's face or, you know, not wearing seatbelts or things like that. So at first I thought, well, is, is that what's happened? You know, is, is just our public space is much more dangerous. What I found though, is that that's not really the case. If anything, the world is safer for moms like me, for kids like my kids than it's ever been before. What I think happened is that you know, in the beginning in the 80s and through the 90s, there were a number of very highly publicized cases of um, child abductions and child murders. There were a lot of moral panics surrounding children where we saw these terrible stories um, 
dramatized and covered by the news again and again. There was also later on um, a lot of attention brought to um, the tragedies of hot car deaths where where children are forgotten in cars, where parents often don't realize the child is in the car and they're left in hot cars for hours and um, and die. That happens about 30 times a year. So I think what happened is there's been some conflation with, the, with that issue. And then also um, I learned about something called the availability heuristic, which means that we're not very good at judging risks statistically. Um, the way we decide how risky something is is sort of how easily we can recall an example of that thing happening. And now because, you know, we're constantly bombarded with examples of terrible things happening to children, it's very easy to recall them. So things, what I found is that things feel safer. I think people, I'm sorry, things feel less safe. People feel as though our children are at greater risk when we're not watching them. That's really what's changed um, and not so much the actual um, reality. It's, it's funny you talk about the statistics. This is something that I think about all the time. I know I do a lot of writing about true crime and that's what I talk about on my podcast. And there is a problem sort of in the institutional memory people have around bad things happening to kids. You take even the most like infamous child abduction cases, you know, look at the J Jacob Wetterling case, for instance. If you look at that case, which was one of these very highly publicized cases, along with Adam Walsh, uh, like in the in like the 70s and 80s and 90s that we just heard about over and over and over again, you know, the, the, these parents in both of these cases did everything right. You know, in Jacob Wetterling's case, he was riding a bike with a f supervision with an older sibling or friend. They were doing they're trying to get home before dark. They were following the rules. They were calling their parents when they said they would call them. The parents left them with this long list of things to do. They did all of those things. And yet something terrible happened. And it, it it is it's kind of proof that, you know, it's it's the parents who do exactly what you did. And it sounds like you're exactly the same kind of parent that I am, where you kind of are like, we just need to make this easier for everybody. I have good judgment about what's safe or not safe. Uh, but it, really, people just are not able to remember any of the facts or details around these these big stories. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And it, it you know, so I learned about something else I learned about in my research was there's something called the just world phenomenon, which means that it's very hard for most people um, psychologically to deal with the fact that terrible things sometimes happen and that it's nobody's fault, right? That it seems... Or that, or that nobody could have prevented it, like in the cases you're talking about. That is a horrible part of just being alive and being human, to think that bad things can occasionally happen to children and that, it, it, that there was nothing we could do to prevent it. And when you're a parent, I think that that's one of the hardest things to deal with, right? Like you, we love our kids so much. We want to protect them. We don't want to think of that, you know, of them ever being hurt or injured or anything like that. But the reality is that sometimes things happen and, and we can't prevent it. And so I think what people do um, and I'm, I've done this too, is that to, to deal with that, um, that anxiety that that produces, we sort of fool ourselves into thinking, well, if I just do everything right, if I follow the rules, if I never let my eyes off my kid, that somehow I will have that kind of control. And, you know, the, the sad reality is that, as, you know, as humans, as mortals, we, we don't have that kind of total control, but that's very hard to deal with. Well, it, al it also makes me wonder, too, about the desire 
for punishment, right? Because on the one hand, there is this feeling of um, of, of people individually trying to uh, exert as much control as they can over seemingly uncontrollable factors in you know in the reality of being alive, but that one of the ways that we as a culture express that control is by um, identifying people who are rule breakers and taking right. great pleasure in punishing them, punishing them so that we can say, well, they're the bad ones and thusly I'm the good ones and thusly I'm protected. And I wonder if if in your research and, and kind of like getting a, a greater sense of the cultural setting and factors that play into this, how you went, uh, how far you went into thinking about and exploring and talking about the way we deal with punishment in our society. Yeah, that's a great question. Um I, I, I do think about that all the time, you know, and I think as, and people ask me a lot, like, why is this happening so much in America? After my piece was excerpted, mm-hmm. the Times ran a follow-up that was just responses from around the world, right. of parents from around right. the world, and and basically ever, all of them saying, what is going on in your country? We do not understand this. Like, children have a lot plenty of freedom here. This this just doesn't make sense to us. And I do think that part of that is this American culture of shaming and blaming, that we love to shame and blame people. We love to especially shame and blame mothers. We love the idea of individual responsibility, right? Um, I think of like, what, what was it after one of the recent school shootings, you know, um, people say that there was um, some, some, um, Someone made a statement publicly that, you know, children, rather than advocating for gun gun reform, for gun control, should just think about taking individual responsibility to keep from being shot in an emergency or something like that. And I, I mean, I think that that just like get, crystallizes it so much, right? So when we have things that make children unsafe, like, for example, um, car culture, the lack of good infrastructure, um, you know, lack of connection among people in communities, um, things that, you know, lack of good, safe public schools, things that would make children safer. We don't really like to focus on those things because, well, because it requires work and it requires like policy changes. And, you know, it's much easier to just say, to focus on individual parents and how can you keep your particular kids safe? Um, And so that's very frustrating to me. One of the people you talk to for your book uh, is is a cognitive scientist who studies the way we think about these kinds of situations. W- what did you learn from her? Yeah, um, Barbara Sarneka at University of um, at in Irvine. She was her work I found fascinating. So basically, what she did is she wanted to see what the connection was between how we assess risk for children and our moral judgment of parents. And so what she did was she sort of, she asked, um, she asked participants to think about different scenarios where a child had been left unattended in a, like a closed, cool parking lot for 10 minutes. And she manipulated the reason the child had been left. So in some cases it was because the parent had been struck by a vehicle and had been struck unconscious for a few minutes where there's obviously no no fault of the parent. And then in some cases, it would be the parent had to run into work for a few minutes to give something to the boss. In another scenario, the, the parent was going to meet a lover for a few minutes. Um, and so what she found is, you know, obviously she expected that people's moral judgment of the parents would 
would change depending on their reason for leaving the child. But what she found also that was really very groundbreaking is that it also changed how much risk, how much danger they thought the child was in in that moment of being left alone, which of course makes no sense, right? I mean, if if you leave a child in a particular place for 10 minutes, it, it doesn't impact how much danger they're in the reason that you've left them, right? But what she found is that for example, if people disapproved of the reason the parent had left the child, they actually thought the child was in more danger. And then the other thing that she found, which was really interesting to me, is the difference between mothers and fathers. So when people were told that the mother had left the child because she needed to run into work to give something to a boss, they morally judged that about on par with the mother going to visit a lover or going to talk to a friend. When it was the father who had run into work, it was judged more as though he'd been struck unconscious or it was something beyond his control, which I think, you know, speaks to what I've and many people I think sense is that as a culture, we still are deeply ambivalent about mothers working um, and that we project a lot of that ambivalence and anxiety it produces onto individual women. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just, it, there is that way in which this, I mean, this is why I kind of re- keep returning to this like social desire to punish and I'm, because it does overlap and intertwine with like, what seems to me, uh, you know, society is like j- just, I mean, we could go on, but general desire to like punish particular classes of people more than others for a variety of reasons. And I think we all like understand the nuances of that or lack of nuances, I guess. And so I, I think one of the things that like I find so frustrating reading about stuff like this um, is, you know, because I know that as a parent, I have made decisions like this of my own childhood, of course, was filled with just wandering around alone, coming home from school at eight, at eight years old and latchkey kid and all that stuff. And so I guess my question is like, what do you, this is like a massive social um just kind of idiocy and i wonder if in situations like this as in all the other ones what hope do you see for changing the way that we think about this what do you think can be done i mean you've written a book that that is this like a part of that conversation but what else do you see happening on the horizon that may change the way a positive way that we think about this kind of stuff yeah, well, I mean, that's a hard question. I, I, because I see a lot that is not very promising, honestly. Um, but I'll try to think of something positive. I mean, I, Lenore Skenazy, who's um, founded the Free Range Kids Movement and who's I've talked to in the book and has sort of become a friend over the years, is doing a lot of sort of on the ground stuff with her the, the new movement called the Let Grow Movement, which tries to help uh, parents not just individually but to sort of form communities of parents that are like minded in this way and that want to be able to parent in a more rational, hands off way. Um, so I think that that's important. You know that. People form networks so that, you know, you don't feel like you're the only person who's, you know, letting your kid have freedoms. It's very hard to do this um, individually. Um, You know, I also just think that I guess I do see 
sort of a, a backlash brewing to the kind of hyper individualist, um, you know, isolated nuclear family, me first, my family first mentality um, that's been, that seems to be on the rise, you know, and there's, there's been a few books now um, on this kind of overall subject. Julie Lithcott Hames has a great book called uh, How to Raise an Adult, which is sort of about, um, you know, how how the, this way we parent without giving children freedom or independence, the long-term consequences as they get older and as they become adults. Um, William Dressowitz has a great book called Excellent Sheep that sort of focuses on higher education and how this plays out. And then recently, Kathy Reynolds Lewis wrote a book called um, The Good News About Bad Behavior, which is also sort of focused on uh, what kids what kids behavior is sort of telling us about the way that we infantilize and overprotect them um you know what i would like to see more of though is is that these these kinds of books are are often very focused on i i feel like the symptom which is the way we limit children's freedom right and what like how we can change that i think we need to look at the bigger causes the sort of sociological um, reasons why we've be begun to live in this extremely fearful, ex um, extremely paranoid way. I mean, I sort of think it's, I, I don't know if this is too strong a term, but I think it's sort of pre-fascism. <laughs> it's pre-fascistic, uh, if that's a word. You know, this idea that you can't trust anyone, never talk to a stranger. If you see something, say something. If you see something, call the police before you even know what you're saying. You know, never talk to anyone's kid unless it's your own. You know, you, you never know. Like, all of these these kinds of um, ways of moving through the world seem like to bode really poorly for the future of our culture and, and civilization. So I think that we need to kind of look at those causes uh, and figure out how do we start connecting more to people who are not in our nuclear family? How do we take more community? communal approaches to protecting children, um, as opposed to just how do I, as an individual, protect my children? Um, I think that, that that we really need to look at the bigger picture here. All right. Uh, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Um, thank you so much for being with us, Kim Brooks. Uh, Kim is the author of Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks for having me. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, time now to take a question from a listener. This one came to us uh, on our phone line. If you would like to uh, ask us a question, you can call us at 424-255-7833. Uh, or if the phone isn't your thing, you can email us at momanddadatslate.com. Uh, anyway, here's a question from Kristen. Hi, my name is Kristen. I was calling because I recently learned that a neighbor um, right across the street from us is on the registered sex offender list. I have two small children. Um, one is nine months. The other is will be three short, soon. 
and there's lots of children on the block. A neighbor actually spoke to me about it and thought we should know. Um, this person just moved in, oh, last fall, and the offender wasn't, uh, the violation was back in 2002. Apparently he was 27 and the, it was an aggravated, um, sexual assault charge and the victim was 16. It was in a different state. Um, seems like a very nice gentleman from what we know about him. Has a dog, no family. Um, I'm wondering if I should be more worried about than I am. Um, 27 and 16 seems like a big age difference, but I uh, would hope people change. Um, <laughs> but of course, I'm not going to send my kids over there alone and I will be on the lookout for things. Um, he hasn't shown any weird signs of, of anything and keeps the house very, very tidy and neat. Um, just wondering what you guys would do and if you would even ever ask the person anything about it if you saw them out and were chatting with them. Not sure you'd want to ever talk about it, but just curious. Thanks so much. Love the show. Bye. Um, so a couple things that I think uh, you should know uh, around asking this question. It sounds like you may be aware of some of them. One is that the sex offender registry is intensely problematic because the sex offender registry rules mean that some people are on the sex offender registry for doing things like, and this is a true story, urinating in public uh, when they're in college, you know, on the walking away from the bar and, you know, urinating against a wall. That has put people in the sex offender registry. Yeah, but this so one is aggravated has, sexual assault. I, I am not. I'm, let me, I'm getting there, Gabe. All I'm right. getting He's there. Getting there. All right. the, the, I just feel like you're going the easy way, and this is the hard just, way. Just, I, I don't want. I don't want there. us nope. to turn this hard question just, into an easy I just, question. What I what I don't want to do is communicate that everybody should look at the sex offender registry list for their town and then tell everybody who lives in every neighborhood uh, who the people are who live in what houses that are on the registry. Because yeah, the 100%. registry is hugely problematic and uh, there are a lot of like due process issues with the registry and there are a lot of, you know, privacy issues with the registry and there are a lot of wrongful conviction issues with the registry. So that being said... I don't think you need to do anything more than you need to do. You're aware there's a guy living across the street from you that it sounds like had uh, was charged with and convicted of a crime in 2002. That's 16 years ago. You know he lives there. You sounds like you have been a courteous and good neighbor and have not treated him like uh, a leper. And you have done your due diligence in just, you know, checking him out and making sure that he's not, you know, very strange, or you've also just been a kind human being and a kind neighbor. Um, I think it's fair to tell your kids to, you know, let you know where they're going if they're going to neighbors' houses all the time. I don't think it would be especially weird for you to say, hey, please don't ever go into this guy's house if he invites you. I think that you can make that rule with lots of people who live in your neighborhood. So I, I don't think you need to do anything more than you need to do. I don't think you need to investigate this case more. Uh, I don't think that you need to, you know, put up some around the neighborhood. I don't think you need to enter into any further state of panic than you may already be. It sounds like you are reacting appropriately and thinking about it appropriately. And asking this question was appropriate. Um, but I wouldn't do more than you've done. And I would be as vigilant as you would be with anyone. Uh, maybe if you want to be a little more vigilant in this case, that is your right to do. But 
you know, kind of understanding the background of of this registry and how it works and whether or not what this guy is listed on the registry as having done or not is based in, you know, facts of a case. That is up to you whether or not you want to, you know, dive into that. But I think you're kind of set. I mean, that's my opinion. I wouldn't do anything more. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that um, while the people end up on the on the registry for all kinds of reasons that are fucked up, this doesn't sound like it's one of those cases. This is not only a sexual assault, but an aggravated sexual assault, which is a more serious form of the crime of rape or sexual assault. Uh, and uh, you've got and maybe maybe the aggravated was attacked on because of the age difference. Um, that said, I uh, I mean I uh, as a as a person. <laughs> I applaud and admire your willingness to believe that that he can change and that people can change and people can can do bad things and not and learn from them and not always be a bad person. I think that's true and I think that's important to keep in mind. And yet, I also don't necessarily think that that should change the way that you deal with the fact that that exists. And um, I think the limits are what Rebecca said. I, I, in general, I think it's perfectly fine to make a rule saying this is not a person whose house we're going to go into. And I think that's probably, and like Rebecca said, I think that's the case for a lot of people. I think that's that you can make that a general rule of the block so that you don't do the thing where you're like, don't go into John's house across the street. And it's like, well, what's wrong with John's? Like, I won't tell you, but never go in his house. That's not, that's not great. So I think that that's I think because of the proximity of this person that it's wise to make that a general rule or to say um don't go into anyone's house without first asking me if I think it's okay kind of thing. Uh so the other question that the listener asked is should I talk to this person about it? I mean, I don't think that I would make it a a a point to try and like elicit a conversation about it necessarily. It does sound like I think if you're thinking about the possibility of talking with him about it, that means that you have something of a talking relationship with this person, which I think is great to have a talking relationship with your neighbors. And and I do think that he probably knows he knows that he's on the registry. So he probably every single person he talks to, he wonders if they know that he's on the registry. And so I don't think that if the conversation were to arise, it would it would necessarily be like shocking to him. Like, how could you have looked at the registry and found me? What is the meaning of this? I think probably he lives every day of his life knowing that any interaction he has with any person may be clouded by the fact that he lives, that he's, his name is on this registry. And it sounds like it's a lifetime thing because typically the registry is 10 years and this is 2002. And so here we are, however, you know, 16 years out and he's still on it. That means that this is probably a lifetime registration for him. So I think it's I certainly think it's possible to talk with him about it, but I don't think you should go and introduce the topic over jello molds. And, you know, and I think <laughs> it's it's if you have a relationship with this person and you have conversations with them, I don't think it's out of order to bring it up when there's comfort and communication about it. And if he doesn't want to talk about it, you can certainly accept that as a boundary. He's not required to talk to you about it. It's not uh, you can't make him force him to talk to you about it. So I think that's how you deal with that. It's you have to deal with it like a human being. And it sounds like you have a fair amount of empathy and understanding emotional intelligence. And I think that you let that guide you as to when and how this conversation comes up. It could be good to talk with him about it, to understand where he's at in his own understanding and processing of what happened. I know people that have done terrible things 
And uh, and when I talk to them about it, sometimes I find, wow, this person still doesn't really understand the true impact of what they did. And that is really valid information to me. And I also know people who've done terrible things and I go, oh, this person, you know, does understand the impact of what they did. And and so it doesn't take away what they've done, but it does impact the way that I understand who they are now. So I think that conversation can be valid, but I think you have to be very careful uh, and uh, about when it comes up and, and kind of let it arise rather than bringing it up. Yeah. So, so everything about the sex offender registry, let me stipulate to that, right? That's all true. It's It would be better if it didn't exist and it would be better for society if you didn't have the information about that guy that you have. It would be better if that information were not being made available in this. Uh, speaking of proto-fascism, as we were with Kim Brooks, it would be much better if our government wasn't like collecting and publicizing this particular list of, of people who've been convicted for this particular set of crimes. Um, at the same time, for you as an individual in this specific case, it might be that it's good that you have this information. Um, I uh, 100% um, am on the side of giving people a fair shake and and not penalizing people who've served their time for, for crimes that they've committed. Um, at the same time, it would be, I think, unnatural for you as a parent not to have the information that you have about this guy in your head somewhere. Um, when you are aware of his presence on your block, I think it would just be impossible not to not to have that in your head and to try to sort of suppress it uh, out of a larger concern about the you know social mechanisms by which you got that information um, seems impossible to me. At the same time, and, and undesirable. Um, at the same time, obviously, as Rebecca said, you don't have to go putting up flyers with the guy's picture on the telegraph polls. I looked up um, what are the actual chances of a a sex offender um, committing a crime again? What are the recidivism rates, if I'm saying that correctly? Um, And and for the crime of rape, uh, within a 15-year period, uh, it seems to be 24%, according to the study that I found in Scientific American, um, which means very probably this guy is not going to commit aggravated sexual assault again. On the other hand, um, if if we say that there's more than a one in five chance that he will commit aggravated sexual assault again, that probably does inform how you think about it and maybe does inform some of the decisions that you're going to make about uh, how you're going to advise your kids. Um, so, yeah, I'm not saying anything that really disagrees with, with what's been said before, um, except that um, I think you have to balance your concern for fairness and justice with like the real fact that there are actual dangers as well as imaginary dangers. And you have to do your best to ignore the imaginary ones and, and also be mindful of the real ones. That's right. I mean, I don't I don't disagree with anything that you said. I mean, a lot of kids get molested. And a lot of kids get molested by uncles and uh, friends of their parents and people at institutions that their parents trust to leave them in the care of. And it is easier to be scared of this guy across the street than it is to be vigilant and scared about, you know, a person who gives you a really bad vibe, who's in a position of trust or who's a family member that you don't want to feel that way about, but that you kind of do feel that way about. It's easier to just be like, okay, the guy with the thing, the name on the list is the thing I need to Yeah, but I also think it's easier for. for you to make up an imaginary person who who this person hasn't called us about um, and, and say that it's you should be worried about that imaginary person instead sure. of the, the real person across the street totally, from this actual totally. caller. But I but I but I trust this woman's I mean I I think that the the thing that I think and this we talked about this, you know, in the other segment of the show 
it sounds like she's got great parental judgment. And it sounds like she is thinking about not purposely putting her kids in harm's way. I think that is the best we can do. And I think that when you find yourself in a situation where there's a guy whose name's on a list and you have a limited amount of information, it's up to you. I mean, I think I agree with Carvel. If you want to bring it up with him, that you absolutely can. Just know that the, you know, the friendly relationship you have might break down. That's fine, too. I'm not saying that that would be like a huge loss in your life or anything, but it sounds like her judgment is really sound. And I kind of trust where she's already going with this. And you know, I, I, I just kind of disagree with the whole idea of like, uh, you know, putting all of your eggs in the most obvious and scariest baskets at the expense of being vigilant and following your gut around things that, you know, someone hasn't uh, had a name put on a list around. You know what I mean? I, I think there just needs to be some balance there. And I don't think we're disagreeing, Gabe. I just think it has to do with the way we're articulating it, frankly. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I mean, I, I think that the thing about the registry is that like, OK, so like when I remember when I think maybe this is before George was born, Ezra was just a baby. We, Joe and I, got on the sex offender registry to see how many sex offenders were in our neighborhood. And man, that is not a that is not something I recommend because <laughs> they were everywhere. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. And uh, and that was you know we had we we had so many we had such an experience with that right because it was like it was like. Um, you know, and then you, you, and like you, and it was everything. I mean, that's sort of when I first learned about this registry, and it was like, it was, it was interesting to see the, the wide, varied things from aggravated assault and, and things like this to like, yeah, to like peeing in public and therefore like, you know, like peeing at a bar that was, you know, like five blocks from a school at 2 a.m. and then therefore being like, you know, exposure, like the charges like exposure within like, near a school which makes it sound totally different than what it really is and so i so yeah it's problematic and yet it also it's i'm not like i don't know that i'm like there should be no sex offender registry i don't i don't really know i think it's a really complicated issue that we're not dealing with in the greatest possible way but it might be the best that we can collectively do but i do think that what it did do for me was the ubiquitousness of sex of like convicted sex offenders within a you know five hundred thousand foot radius from our front door really did make me reflect on the fact that it's not about finding the individual person and shaming them so that you're safe. It's about recognizing that that's part of this world and so and 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 navigating your children through it with that understanding. And I think that's a subtle but really important difference. That it's not about like fine and shame, which is kind of what we were talking about in the other segment, but that it's really about understanding that these, that kind of what Rebecca's saying, these people are all around. Some of them are on the list. Some of them are not. Uh, and, and so really what it is, is that it's a way of understanding that this is part of what you have to navigate if you're bringing a child to the world the same way you have to navigate, you know, any other unwanted force. Um so I just I want to clarify that like I don't necessarily think like yeah just n- no one should care I think it is valuable to a certain extent but I think it has to be used with some intelligence and context. All right, uh, time for us to move on. Uh, thanks for the question, Kristen. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. 
Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time now for the part of the show where we recommend things to you. It's a part that we like to call recommendations. Uh, Rebecca, would you like to be the first recommendator? Uh, I have a double recommendation only because the first is not for everyone. Um, We dropped off my wonderful stepdaughter, Lily, at college last week. And kind of in uh, to celebrate that and in anticipation of it, we started watching the uh, spinoff of the show Blackish, which I love. Grownish, which features the daughter uh, in the show Blackish going off to college. When I say it's not for everybody, what I mean is that it covers a lot of adult themes. This is not like a different world, the spinoff of The Cosby Show. This is a much more realistic portrayal of an 18-year-old girl's experience at college. She has sex. She does some drugs. She parties. She grapples with uh, kind of big and uh, all-encompassing choices. It gets deep. It's very funny. It's got a very diverse and cool cast. And I think it's something that you would enjoy watching either with your teenagers or perhaps with a spouse if you are commiserating over having just sent a kid to college and you want to terrify them about all the things that are going to happen there. Uh, But the thing that I want to recommend that's for everybody, and I'm sorry to do the double, but this is just so delightful. I can't go without mentioning. There is an amazing video making the rounds this week of a dog, Kirk the Border Collie, uh, watching himself on TV winning an an agility championship. And Kirk the Border Collie is jumping up and down watching himself win an agility championship on TV. I know I just said it twice. I watched this video at least six times before I got out of bed this morning. It is a great video. Your kids will love it. You will love it. It is a dog watching himself on TV win an agility championship and reacting. Uh, It's incredible. So those are my two recommendations, and we'll make sure to share those out. Those are great recommendations. And I would think with the number of times that you've said agility championship that you would be slightly better at it. (laughs) You would think. It's a hard thing to say, Gabe. It's tough. I managed it, and it was my first time. (laughs) Carvel, what about you? What do you recommend? I'm I'm going with this super nerdy recommendation. I'm recommending The Elements of Style by Strunk and White, but the illustrated mm-hmm. version, which I just acquired. I don't know if people know about this. Everyone knows that Strunk and White wrote is like the only like whatever like writing manual that's ever made the bestseller and it's 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 kind of obnoxious and kind of amazing, but it's all these rules about how you're supposed to write everything in language and as a writer I like studiously avoided it for all my life and then recently I was like, I should probably at least know what these editors are getting their pants in a bunch about with my copy and so um so I ended up getting it and then but then I decided I found out that there was an illustrated version which has got these amazing paintings um, and uh, by the illustrator Myra Kalman. And it's just so cool. And I, uh, I showed it to my kids. And even though, obviously, the, you know, 
who like kids don't care about grammar, but they kind of do actually get interested in like the way these particular grammatic rules are laid out, especially with the illustrations. I don't know. It's just maybe it's not for your five year old, but I think the kids like who have to deal with language on a regular basis and are starting to be interested in how it works and starting to wonder things about it can find something in it. So that's the elements of style illustrated by Strunk, White and Myra Kalman. Nice. Uh, I'm going to recommend a movie that we watched while we were on vacation. It's a it's a Disney movie that came out in 2012, so it's not exactly obscure. Um, but we hadn't seen it because our kids were were not uh, yeah, movie watching stage in 2012. Uh, it's a movie called Wreck It Ralph. Uh, it's a movie yes. that takes place within the world of video games. I'm not like a particular. I play video games sometimes, but I'm not like a gamer per se. And so I thought it would mostly be in jokes that I would not be interested in. It turns out beyond all the gaming in jokes that I'm sure are great for people who are knowledgeable in that milieu. It is a great kids movie about a big sort of lumbering guy uh, who is like the Donkey Kong style bad guy in an arcade game, but who really has a good heart and he's just doing his job by smashing things up. And the reason I want to recommend it is that if you have a young boy, let's say a boy who's around, oh, four years old, um, that boy probably has some energy and some sort of destructive impulses and maybe also a very good heart. I'm not thinking of any specific four-year-old boys here, but bear with me. Um, and and a movie <laughs> in which like a big, strong, smash em up guy is also shown to be warm-hearted, helpful, saves the day with his smashing powers. Um, it, it, I think it really connected with, with Leo in, in a pretty deep way. After we watched the, the day after we watched the movie, he was getting really mad about something and he's four. So he's at the stage where he still sometimes throws tantrums where something isn't going his way. And he, you know, he learned that he wasn't going to get the thing that he wanted. And he started doing the thing where he like stomps his feet and pounds his fists and then he noticed what he was doing and he starts going, I'm Wreck-It Ralph, I'm Wreck-It Ralph and started stomping and pounding the couch. But now he was really happy about it because he was being Wreck-It Ralph. And yeah. I think it really helped him. He has not done that kind of tantrum so much since then. And, and when he has, then I've sometimes said, do you feel a bit like Wreck-It Ralph right now? And he says, yeah, I do. And he'll start punching the couch again. And, and this idea of like channeling that like aggressive, destructive little boy energy in a good direction and, and making it part of the, the sort of value and goodness of a person, uh, it's, it, I got more out of Wreck-It Ralph than I, I expected I would. So that's my recommendation. Nice. Yeah. It's a good very, one. Very good film. I'd double that. All right. Um, yeah, the plot is good, too, even if you don't have a four-year-old boy. It's a funny movie. And that is our show. If you have a question that you want us to address on the air, you can call us at 424-255-7833, or you can send us an email, momanddad at slate.com. Uh, let us know what you thought of this episode uh, at the lively and active Slate Parenting Facebook group. Go to, go to Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. Uh, always a lot of great discussion there. People sharing their own triumphs, fails, parenting quandaries. Our show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll see you next week.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.